morning. Join me as we begin in prayer. Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, and we thank you for your word that you've given us through the Apostle Paul, given to us uh, by your Holy Spirit. Father, as we come to you this morning, we come with the baggage of our week. We come with our own sin. We come, Lord, uh, in need of your grace. We pray that you would fill us with your grace as we hear your word, as we sit at your feet. We pray that as I open up your word, you would take away uh, anything that is of me in this message. You would cause anything that I say that's, that's purely of me and my flesh to be forgotten, and that you would allow your truth to stand firm. And so we pray that you would build us up, that you would do your will in this church this morning for the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, and for the spread of his kingdom in all the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of this text here that we've come to. And uh, the title of the message is A Portrait of Godly Patriarchy. Uh, Some of you who looked at the bulletin this morning might have thought it was one of those choose-your-own-adventure kind of sermons because I accidentally typed or instead of of, but the sermon title is A Portrait of Godly Patriarchy. But We come to this week in our series House Rules based on those two verses that you heard there towards the end, verses 14 and 50, that talk about that Paul is writing this first letter to Timothy to give an idea of what are the rules of the house, the household of God. And how should we conduct ourselves? And it's a critical thing for us to draw from at this season in the life of our church. And so Paul, in giving these various house rules, he comes now to the qualifications for elders. And as in the rest of this letter, he's not just issuing all of these rules because he was feeling legalistic that day. God's rules of the house are not just there uh, to be pressed upon people. They are good gifts. God's rules are graces. Because we start with the gospel. We start with the fact that we were strangers, we were orphans, we were alienated from this household of God. We were objects of his wrath. And through the blood of his son and the saving reign and rule of Christ, we've been adopted by faith into this household. And so we're his children and God isn't just some sloppy parent who pulls sinners off the street and lets things go run amok inside the house where he brings them. We're adopted into a loving joyful, and orderly family. And so that's why he gives us his house rules. And that means that that not all organized religion, of course, which is a term that we're suspicious of these days, obviously not all organized religion is true religion. But all true religion is organized religion. So Paul gives us these rules to organize us. And so we come to elders here in these first seven verses. And we realize that a true local church is more than a Bible study under a tree. It has to have an authority structure as much as as we might chafe at the thought of that these days. And sometimes we get this wrong. Sometimes we make it all about just one lead guy at the top. Sometimes we think that anytime Christians are together, that's automatically a church. Sometimes we think, well, as long as there's a, a board with fiduciary responsibility, an advisory board, something like that, that's not the same thing as what Scripture gives us here, which is a twofold authority structure. There's two offices of the church. There's a plurality of elders, and this term elder is the same. It's used interchangeably throughout the New Testament with overseers, which is the word from which we get bishop. But don't think of a guy in a funny hat. Think of just somebody that has oversight, that oversees in the church. It's used interchangeably with elder and with pastor. So there's the office of overseer or elder or pastor. And then there's the leadership office, 
but then there's also separate from that the office of deacon, which is a position of service, not of leadership. And we'll get into deacons next week. But elders are critical to this revival of the local church. We need elders. Titus 1.5, Paul tells Titus, for this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. So Paul was this pioneering missionary, but he wouldn't leave a church behind without qualified elders ruling. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, Paul again tells Timothy, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So the whole purpose of Paul's writing is that there would be a leadership pipeline, that, that the church would not be without elders. And so why have we titled this a, a, a portrait of godly patriarchy? Last week we saw that only men may be pastors, because in chapter 2, Paul does say that he does not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Paul makes that comment. And we see that one of the qualifications for overseers is that they be able to teach, that they be apt to teach. So only men may be pastors. Paul actually gives a number of qualifications in these first seven verses here. I counted 16. You might count differently, and maybe your translation reads a little bit differently. But they all revolve around character. And when we talk about men serving as pastors or elders, we have to remember that, that the fact that only men may serve as pastors is not just a minor inconvenience on what would be an otherwise gender-neutral job description. Because the character traits that are all listed here are the character traits of a father. Not saying that someone must be biologically a father to be in this position. But pastoral ministry is more than preaching. It's more than organizational leadership. It's more than being a CEO-type figure over, in, uh, over a nonprofit, something we call the local church. Pastoral ministry is it's holistic. It's spiritual fatherhood. And so we demonize the term patriarchy today. We talk about the patriarchy. But patriarchy literally just means father rule. And, of course, it's no wonder as we look around, why many Christians and non-Christians bristle at the idea of patriarchy. We all have a massive father hunger, right? Just look at our children's movies. I don't remember the last time I saw an, in fact, uh, an, an intact family unit in a children's movie. Many of us have been wounded. Our culture is hungry for fathers. And yet you don't have to look much farther than the first few pages of Scripture to see that the Bible is a patriarchal book, God is our father. As we read in Ephesians 3 when we began the service, every family on earth is named from God the father. Every fatherhood is named from God the father. Adam was our father, and he dragged us into sin. He was the head of the human race. Abraham is referred to as the father of all who believe. He's the model and the archetype of our saving faith. Jesus brings us back to the Father. That's the point of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul describes himself not just as an apostle, a missionary, or an evangelist, but also as a spiritual father, 1 Corinthians 4.15. Patriarchy is an inescapable concept. Let me say that again. Patriarchy is an inescapable concept. God made man first to rule, to serve, to lead, to protect, to guide. So the question is not whether or not men will rule. The question is how will they lead? either by self-interest or by self-sacrifice. See, so the opposite of a man who leads his family, 
his wife, his children in a godly manner, is not a man who doesn't lead in any way, but is a man who who sees his leadership, who leads in an ungodly way through passivity. So God has designed the church, the home, all of these things to function under the leadership of men that he's appointed. According to a 1994 Swiss study, children whose father was a faithful churchgoer and whose mother was non-practicing are as much as, now get this, and this just proves how God has covenantally wired us to need fathers. Children whose father was a faithful churchgoer and whose mother was non-practicing are as much as 22 times more likely to remain in church than those whose mother was the churchgoer and whose father didn't attend. Right? So if the mother is faithful and the father isn't, 2% of those kids stay in church. If it's switched and the father is faithful and the mother doesn't attend church or isn't involved at all, it goes up to 44%. So generally, and you see it, you see it in studies, you see it sociologically, you see it anecdotally, and you see it played out in the life of the church. As the father goes, so goes the house, generally speaking. This is not a guarantee that if a father is a believer, the children will all be faithful. But generally speaking, as the father goes, so tends to go the house. Because the father is always responsible for the house. Just as the church is the household of God, the father. And he's baked this reality into the entire created order. And it's baked into the church, too. And that's why there's this office of elder. So the church needs godly patriarchs in the best biblical sense of the term, in the godly sense of the term, not in a term that has all of the cultural baggage and the abusive baggage. The main idea this morning that we want to pull from this text, and we want to specifically focus on verses 4 and 5, but we'll walk through those first seven verses, is that biblical manhood, faithfully discharged in headship over the home, is the, two things, base requirement and blueprint for leadership in the church. Biblical manhood faithfully discharged in headship over the home is the base requirement and blueprint for leadership in the church. So in other words, think of the church this way. The church as the household of God is to be full of spiritual fathers leading, among other people, physical fathers, in the name of the heavenly father. That's what's going on in the life of the church. So what is the difference between the type of godly patriarch that God wills for the church and home and the negative concepts that we have? We'll dive into that, but it has more to do, this whole job description, with who a man is than what he does. This pastoral profile laid out in verses 1 through 7 is incredibly light on duties, but it's heavy on character. Paul front loads the whole profile with character attributes. Character matters as much and often even more than one's preaching ability. Note what isn't listed here in this job description The elder doesn't have to be cool. So whatever your conception of cool is, whether it's suit jackets, skinny jeans, skin fade haircuts, bow ties, right? All of these things are completely optional. He doesn't have to belong to a certain culture. He doesn't have to be Jewish, Greek, black, white, or a member of a biker gang in order for the church to reach all of the biker gangs in the area. Right? That's not a requirement. It doesn't list certain credentials. He doesn't have to be ordained in a certain way or in a certain denomination. He doesn't have to have his MDiv or his PhD, although those things are fantastic and we should not devalue theological education. These things are great. Instead of credentials, there's a focus on character. Also notice what's missing on here. He doesn't have to have a mystical calling experience. 
The saying is trustworthy. Verse 1, if anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So he doesn't have to have a, a certain liver quiver in order to know for sure that it's a God thing that he would pursue ministry. The desire is sufficient. The desire to serve is called noble. So I'm going to break these qualifications down into three categories of what is on here. First will be the elder's character. We'll look at that in the first uh, three verses there. Second, the elder's home. And third, the elder's witness. But as we dive in, just want to give a caution. First, notice how high the bar is set. I'm convinced that if churches observed these rules, the job market for pastors would open up pretty dramatically. Don't assume that this list is also just for aspiring pastors only. All men and women should strive for the types of character traits and attributes that are listed here. This is something for us to learn and apply personally and not just to think about as far as a pastor is concerned. The pastor is not so much held to a different standard, a higher standard, as he is just held to an amplified version of the same standard that all believers are held to. Second, as we look over this list, the the bar is set pretty high, but don't be discouraged. If you're convicted as we walk through this, as I often was in the preparation of this message, don't wallow in your shame. That's not what we're here for. We showed up today because we're sinners in need of grace. Amen. So take hold of Christ as we read. And as you do, see these sets of qualifications, not as ladders, but as gifts. Okay, so this is not a ladder. This is not for your self-righteousness. This is not for you to climb up each rung of personal moral achievement in this self-righteous quest to become a super Christian or a leader or an influencer. Think of these things as gifts. These are graces that Christ has in himself, that the Father has in himself, and that he freely pours into humans that he happens to choose to lead his church, and he gives these people as gifts to the church. Think of Ephesians 1, right? When he ascended on high, he gave gifts to men, and those gifts were, among other people, the pastors, the teachers, the evangelists. So these are gifts that God pours out of himself into people. And so, with those two caveats in mind, let's dive in and look at the elder's character. Therefore, an overseer, verse 2, must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. First, let's focus on above reproach. So what does that mean? Let's be honest. We're all sinners. What does it mean to be above reproach? No one is perfect. That can't be the standard. Of course, at the same time, you don't want a pastor who just glorifies and gloats in his sin that he continues to indulge. Literally, the word here that's translated above reproach means unable to be grabbed onto impervious to credible accusation, right? You can't, you can't grab onto him. If you threw charges at him, none of them would stick. That's what this means. So think of a, a good biblical example would be Daniel. Remember how much the king's men couldn't stand Daniel. They hated him. But they couldn't even catch him breaking the speed limit, right? So they had to write a new law against prayer that they knew that he would break just so that they, uh, that they would have an excuse to accuse him. So the idea here is a man that you, you can't land an accusation against him. When I think of above reproach, I think of a man like my father, who's not the flashiest person, and he's not a leader, and he's not a stand-up you know, behind the stage and draw attention to himself kind of guy, but, but he is faithful. This is the type of man who's not perfect, 
but he is repentant. That's the type of person here. So this sets the tone for the whole list. Above reproach is the umbrella for the whole list. And on the one hand, we have to be gracious in how we approach the rest of the qualifications here. Because a pastor is supposed to be above reproach, but not sinless. You'll never find someone that's sinlessly perfect. And if you knew the sins of each man that fills this pulpit, including myself, you'd want to hear none of them. So we can't be too pharisaical about this. But at the same time, when God draws lines, when God gives us qualifications, he gives us house rules. And if we're his sheep and he's the shepherd, right, if God erects a fence, we can do two things. We can look at that fence and we can say, oh, there's a boundary. I better stay on this side. Or we can go and try and dance up as close to the electrical wire as possible. Right. You might be technically within the bounds, but there's two different spirits there. And so when we approach this list, we have to realize that the point is not for us to read this and say, well, technically so-and-so is above reproach. No, the point is that God has given us a blueprint, and we should observe it and not dance on the wire, not dance on the fence, or we'll get zapped. He must be above reproach. He must be the husband of one wife. You might see a footnote there, and, and literally this could be translated a, a man of one woman or a one-woman man. What does that mean? Well, important to focus on what it doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that singles are disqualified. Now, Scripture assumes that marriage is normative. Scripture assumes that marriage is the normal route of life for men and women. But it can't mean that singles may not serve. Otherwise, Jesus and Paul, among others, would be disqualified to serve in this office. Some would interpret it to mean that, that a man can't remarry if he wants to serve as an elder. I think that loads too much into the text. The bottom line is that he must be monogamous, one woman, and faithful. Right? One woman for a lifetime. So no polygamers, obviously. No adulterers. No, no one who's wrongfully divorced their spouse. So after conversion, which is the part of a pastor's life that you're looking at, right? You're not worried about what happened before his conversion. You're looking at what happened after his conversion. Does this man go through relationships like he goes through socks? If the answer is yes, then he's not qualified. Here's the key question here. Would you want this man's marriage to be a model to your congregation? That's the question that this is asking. Would you take his marriage and use that as an example of normative Christian obedience in marriage? Because the pastor is tasked to love Christ's bride. So how is he treating his? Third, he must be sober-minded. Or the NASB says temperate. Literally, it means not mixed with wine. So this is somebody who's single-minded, who's focused. He's serious about the things of God. He's spiritually minded. He cares about the things of God. He cares about eternal things. He's not obsessed with youthful trivialities. He's not wasting 16 hours a week playing Xbox 360. He's not a goof off. Fourth, he needs to be self-controlled. He needs to be prudent, sane, sensible, self-aware. Fifth, he needs to be respectable, which is something that I I think, I think the weight of that is lost on us today. We tell our son often, if you want to be respected when you grow up, you have to be respectable. So orderly, decent, modest. And there's something about a guy, there's something about a man, a godly man, a mature man, who some of these men just carry themselves in a manner of, of purity and 
worthiness that just garners admiration, right? Aren't there certain men that you sit down with? I sat down with the pastor this week. I was away at a conference. I sat down with him, and the man just, just draws respect to himself. He's a, he's a kind man. He's a tender man. He texted me this morning. He said, hey, I'm praying for you. There's certain people that you just sit down with where they just garner your respect and admiration. Look for that kind of a trait. Is the man respectable? Sixth, hospitable. This is cool. The word hospitable in Greek literally means loving strangers, which I think is neat. So how does this man behave when there's someone new in church? How is his home? Is it open? Is his home open as a place of ministry? Is it an extension of his ministry? Or is it a private domain that no one else is allowed into? Does he greet newcomers or does he run off into his office? And what's interesting is the word specifically used here is, is philoxenos, right? So think of xenophobia, right, which is a fear of, of strangers, fear of the unknown, fear of things that are new. And obviously, philo is loving in Greek. And so think of the idea of loving strangers. And when we use the term xenophobia, lots of uh, connotations come up in our culture now. You think of xenophobia, you're afraid of immigrants, you're afraid of refugees. But the thought would be, does this person love strangers? Does this person love people that aren't like himself? Does he love them enough to reach out to them in evangelism and bringing them into the church? Does he love the lost? Does he love people that aren't from our culture? He must be hospitable. His home will be the place that bears out whether or not that's true. Seventh, he must be able to teach or apt to teach. They mean the same thing. So what does this mean for elders? Because I want to talk about what does it mean for an elder to be willing to teach, but then I also want to talk about what it means for us, because again, we can learn from these attributes, even if we're not aspiring to the office of elder or overseer. So what does it mean for elders? First, he can do more than press play on a teaching tape. So Titus 1, verse 9, Paul gives a description to Titus that's very similar to this, and it helps fill out our understanding In verse 9, he must be holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So this is very similar to what we saw in chapter 1 a few weeks ago where Timothy was told to remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. So he's supposed to stand for true doctrine and he's supposed to be able to know his theology well enough to refute those who contradict he doesn't have the option of just being known for what he's for he's also supposed to be conversant with what scripture is against so this doesn't mean he has to have the best jokes this doesn't mean that he has to be the most gifted communicator this does not imply perfect presentation skills but if he's the type of person that will only preach or teach a small group at gunpoint he's not your guy and not only that, but he should be able, remember the passage we read from 2 Timothy 2, two. he should be able to teach others who can teach. So he should be at least able enough to teach that he can equip others who someday can also serve as leaders in the church. And I think this is important. We don't want to rush over this. This is a, a big qualification. Remember the, Peter, the, the conversation that Peter had with Jesus after Jesus was raised from the dead. Lord, you know I love you. Jesus didn't say, good, I know you love me, so go ahead and balance the budget, get a thumping band on stage, and pull off a gangbusters VBS. He doesn't say that. He says, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. So to love the people of God, to love 
Jesus and to love his sheep is to nourish them, is to feed them. And what can we learn from the rest of this? That's elders. What can we learn from the rest of this too? A lot of us may be thinking, well, I'm not a teacher. I'm not a theologian. Everyone is a theologian. If you say, I just love Jesus, I'm not a theologian, you just made a theological statement. Congratulations. G.K. Chesterton said that theology is just the part of religion that uses your brains. So we can all at least teach our kids. We can grow in this. We can all grow in the area of being able to share scripture with others and unpack it. We should all aspire to this. But an elder must be able to teach Eighth, he must not be addicted to wine. So literally, the word here could be translated beside wine. So this is not the type of person who's never seen without a glass in his hand or a bottle. He's not a drunkard. He does not habitually drink his feelings. Ninth, not violent, but gentle. The word violent here is a striker or a brawler. So he's not itching for a fight, right? He doesn't get anything out of that. And gentleness these days is an underrated concept. Because I think we're surrounded by the counterfeit, right? We're surrounded by the counterfeit, which is soft men. This isn't saying he must be soft, but he must be gentle. He's to be strong, but he's to be self-controlled and under restraint. There's something righteous about a strong, godly man who practices kindness. There's an author Justin Taylor, he's made this comment, and it made an impact on me. And it's just one sentence, it's tweetable, but he said, consciously cultivate, and he's speaking to men specifically, because this often doesn't come into our definitions of biblical manhood to the level that I think that it should. Consciously cultivate the Christian virtue of kindness. Listen, men, like speaking from one to another, uh, being abrasive doesn't make us powerful. Being mean doesn't make us leaders. We can all grow in kindness and gentleness. Verse 10, not quarrelsome. So he can't be a brawler physically or verbally. This is being a verbal brawler. That's not to say that he shouldn't say hard things. He has to say hard things. That's part of being a pastor. But a godly elder knows that he's supposed to say hard things, not because they're hard, but because they're right and they're true and they're necessary. But he doesn't delight in saying hard things just because they're hard. He's not contentious. He's not argumentative. He's not a a keyboard warrior. He's not the guy that's always got the zinger. He's not a verbal hotshot. Not quarrelsome. The 11th trait, and we're in verse 3, not a lover of money. Now this is hard to spot, and it's hard to spot because I think when we start to become transparent and authentic, there's a lot of sins that we often confess to ourselves, and this usually isn't one of them. Right? There's lots of people that will say, oh, I struggle with lust or struggling to trust God more. Very few people will come in and say, I'm greedy. Right? That one just doesn't land the same way in, in our small groups. right? So it can be hard to spot, but it is critical. Because if somebody is concerned about just how to make more money, they're going to be ineffective in their ministry. They're going to go where the biggest paycheck will take them. The love of money makes shipwrecks of ministries and souls compromises don't happen out of nowhere. Whether they're theological compromises, whether they're moral compromises, they don't happen out of nowhere. They happen when somebody gets their purse strings tugged. So pastors have to have integrity in the area of money. They can't be in it for the money, which is fine because there isn't much. (laughs) 
but don't decide for a pastor. And this is especially aimed at the, the pastoral search team. Don't decide for a pastor that you're going to help him fight greed proactively by paying him less. Just keep that in mind, because in chapter five, Paul says that elders who teach are worthy of double honor and they shouldn't be muzzled. That's verses 17 and 18. Being relatively affluent doesn't make you greedy inherently and being poor doesn't make you content. Understanding that, right? So you can be a broke miser or you can be a godly, generous, rich person. Both things are possible. Maybe you've seen your kid go into his bedroom and dump out his piggy bank and he's rubbing his 16 nickels together and he's like, ah, money. Actually, our daughter, Lydia, we have this uh, cash register full of play money. It's one of those Melissa and Doug play sets and she dumps it out and she doesn't know what it is. She's only a year and a half, but but uh, just the syllables that come easy to a, a small child, right? Somehow she picked up on the word for it. So she's throwing it around and she's rolling it and she's saying, money, <laughs> money, just over and over again. Oh, she didn't have a microphone to whack though. Point is, you can have almost no money to your name and still be a little bit greedy, right? So being poor doesn't make you not a lover of money. So just separate those things in your head. Somebody's standard of living is different from their character. Separate those things and avoid someone that has a habitual love of money. And next, Paul focuses on the household, and that's where we want to hang our hats too. The elder's home, verses 4 and 5, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So what does it mean to manage one's household well? Could you give us more here, Paul? Don't you know that we have a search team that's meeting? Well, the word here for manage just means literally to stand before. And that comes to us in, in two senses. One, it can mean to, to stand before as as in the sense of actively ruling a group of people, leading them. And second, it means to stand as a positive example before those you lead. You're standing up on behalf of them. You're a leader by your example. Both of those, I think, apply to not only spiritual fathers in the church, but fathers in the home, the type of godly patriarchs that he's called us all to be. Men are called to lead their homes spiritually, financially, educationally, personally. So what does it mean, though, to manage one's household well? Well, to quote an old Supreme Court case, and I won't give you the context of it, but uh, there's a famous opinion where one of the justices wrote, well, I'll know it when I see it. How do you know if someone is managing their household well? Well, without defining too much, you will know it when you see it, and you'll know it when you don't see it. You can't measure it. You can't quantify it. But that doesn't mean it's unknowable. So what is the household? If that's what managing is, what is the household? Well, Paul specifically focuses on children, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. But he's not limiting the meaning of household to children. He's not saying only your children have to be under control. Because in verse 12, look down under deacons, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. So children and households. So they're not just the same thing. One's oikos, that would be the household, included their spouse, their children, even household servants. So the household was one cohesive, economically productive unit, unlike 
the way that our household is today, where most of our houses just serve as closets where we stop back in and sleep before going out to the next thing. So a man whose marriage is golden but whose children are hellraisers isn't managing his household well. A man whose children are golden but whose marriage is raising hell is not managing his household well. The same applies. But the focus is specifically on children. He says in verse 4, he must be keeping his children submissive. So again, here's what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that if you're scheduled to preach and if your four-year-old has a temper tantrum in the minivan on the way to church that you have to turn around and call out. That's not what it means. Paul knows that children are little sinners. But it does mean that children are not living in habitual rebellion. So in Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 through 21, you can look at it for yourself, but basically if a child grew into adulthood and remained absolutely incorrigible, he was dishonoring his parents, rejecting authority. He's become basically the, the town drunkard, a brawler, a glutton. If he's that guy in your town, ancient Israel was told he was supposed to be put to death. If he struck his parents physically, if he came to blows with his parents, Exodus 21:15 says he was to be put to death. So again, this doesn't mean that if your two-year-old, you know, cocks his arm and gets ready to lob his Cheerios bowl at you, that doesn't mean that you pick up stones. That, that's not what it means. But it does mean that a habitually rebellious child is a problem, a disqualifying one under God's law in Old and New Testaments. And this also means that a pastor's children must be believers. Titus 1.6, again, gives us more context. It says that a man is qualified if he is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe not accused of dissipation or rebellion. His children must be faithful. They must be believing. Well, at what age, right? If he has an infant and this infant is not yet making profession of faith, is he disqualified? Well, no, but Paul doesn't specify an age. You know, in our society, we want to say that after age 18, that's the child's problem. That's not my problem. And it is undeniable that sometimes there are cases where all of your children are following the Lord, they grow into adulthood, you have no signs that anything's wrong, and then suddenly out of nowhere, the one in their 30s apostatizes. What happens then? Well, I would encourage us, let's not think about every possible exception to the guidelines that are given here. Again, maybe there is a time for dancing on the fence, but let's just take it at face value. Paul doesn't give an age limit. And we should be slow to impose one as well. The pastor with the rebellious teenager who's sleeping around in church in the youth group. Or the 20-something who hates the Lord. That type of pastor is disqualified. What's the point? Why dig into his home? Why dig into his children? Here's the point. What is the pastor's disciple-making track record? Right? Your children are the evidence of how you're doing at making disciples. So what does the track record tell you? And you don't have to wait until the children are grown to know how it's going. You can tell from straight out of the gate what the trajectory of that child is going to be within reason. You can tell from how someone is parenting eventually how that children, those children, Lord willing, might turn out. Of course, this does create a tension for all of us in the room who are either in the church or who are fathers who lead families. How can the father be held responsible for the faith of his children? Right? I mean, that's the objection. How can a father be responsible? 
After all, every individual is responsible before God as an individual. We believe that God is sovereign over whom he saves. He's sovereign over election and reprobation. They're, they're responsible for themselves. They stand before God as individuals. That's true. They are responsible for themselves. And yet, Scripture also teaches that if children don't follow the Lord and honor their parents, the father does bear some responsibility. Both of these things, which seem to be intention, are true. Now, you cannot control your child's conversion as much as we wish we could. But you can control your input into that equation. We're called, Ephesians 6, 4, to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Remember Joshua, Joshua 24, 15, As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You're responsible, men, to do everything within your power to bring about the conversion of your child. And not just his or her conversion, but also a lifetime of discipleship. That doesn't mean you can guarantee the outcome, but you're responsible to do everything you can. The Lord, in his grace, may save your child. He may not save your child. But you are responsible to be a means of grace in that process, whereby God draws people to himself sovereignly. What does this look like? I think Deuteronomy 6, again, back to God's law, is helpful. This is the same place where we're told that the most important command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the same place that we're told that the Lord your God, the Lord is one. It also talks about parenthood in verses 20 through 24. And I'll just read it here. You're welcome to turn there as well. Again, Deuteronomy 6, 20 through 24. When your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Why did we sing this church today, Dad? This, this song today in church. Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Pharaoh and against Egypt and all of Pharaoh's household before our eyes. And he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God, for our good, as always, that he might preserve us alive as we are to this day. So, Kids are asking, why do we do it this way? Why are we doing that? And the father is the one that says, well, here's why. And there's a conversation happening in the back of the wagon, not the minivan, but the wagon on the way back from the tabernacle, right? As men, we're to pray with our kids. We should read them scripture. If you haven't taught your children anything outside of that, do a, a simple catechism with them. Start small. You work up to full-blown family worship or whatever it is. It doesn't happen overnight. And sometimes life happens and you have a day off and that, that happens. But are you managing your household well? Are you keeping your children submissive with all dignity? And notice that phrase, with all dignity. So fear can't be your go-to instrument. Ephesians 6.4 also says, don't provoke your children to wrath. Right? That's what happens when fear and intimidation are your go-to. That's not a dignified father. A dignified father can exercise sway with his children. He doesn't have to perpetually resort to coercion for the entire lifespan of the child. And then there's two comparison statements that come, and I think this is important. Verse 5, For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's... And it sounds like he's going to say God's household. He says, how will he care for God's church? But actually, in verse 15, he does say, the church is the household of God. 
So he's drawing a clear comparison. The church is the household of God. So fathers are to their households as God is to his church. And elders are to be in churches what fathers are in the homes. Godly patriarchy, as we said at the beginning, in the home is the base requirement and blueprint for godly patriarchy in the church. By the way, this analogy between household and church only works if the people of God are responsible as much as they can to obey Hebrews thirteen seventeen to submit to their elders, to obey their elders, those who are over them in the Lord. Congregations shouldn't just outvote their elders when they disagree with them. Because for submission to be submission, that necessarily means that sometimes you're going to disagree, but you submit to that authority that's greater than you. So elders have this real authority here, but, but second, notice what, what else is being paralleled. There's this parallel here between household and church. There's also a, another set of parallel terms. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? It's not just leading. It's not just being a dictator. It's caring. It's shepherding. It's nourishing. It's treasuring. It's cherishing and loving. The souls of this church don't belong to our elders, Ralph and Mark, or to the Bible Fellowship Church, or to anyone who fills this pulpit. They belong to Jesus. and He died for them as a gift to give back to the Father. Here are your people that you chose, Father. And all over this package, he's stamped handle with care. The church is to be handled with care. This same word here used, how will he care for God's household, for God's church, is used in Luke 10 about the Good Samaritan when he finds the man on the road and he binds up his wounds and he bandages them. The word care is used there as well. So what is godly Patriarchy. What is this portrait that we're painting here? It's a servant leader. It's someone who manages and leads, but also cares and treasures and faithfully, lovingly, kindly shepherds people. And this applies to people in church. This applies to the home in the same way for fathers. And one quick note before we move to our third and final point. Since shepherding at home is the most important first ministry for a man. Then if a leader has to step away from his office, his ministry to care for his home, that's not a defeat. That's a good and godly thing because the good shepherd leaves the 99 and goes after the one. You don't stop being a shepherd to care for your family. You're doing more shepherding. You're focusing that shepherding effort where it needs to be focused because we serve God first where he's placed us and then where he allows our impact to be spread and third the elders witness he must not be a recent convert or he may be puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil devil so remember he can't be a neophyte he can't be a brand new convert this doesn't say he can't be young chapter 4 verse 12 says let no one despise you for your youth but set the believers an example in speech conduct love faith and purity That's the only thing the New Testament says about the age of an elder. But spiritual age matters immensely. The wear on a man's shoes doesn't matter near as much as his mileage with Jesus. Has he been walking with the Lord for a long time? If he hasn't been, he could fall into the same trap that Satan did, which was pride, the condemnation of the devil. Remember, he wanted to be equal with God, 
and he fell because of his pride. That's in Isaiah 14. And he must be thought of well by outsiders in verse 7. So he must have a good public reputation. Now we know that unbelievers aren't going to love us, right? We're promised in John 15 and plenty of other places that we'll be hated by the world because the world hates Christ. But the goal is that our lives would be so unassailable in character that even pagans who hate our Jesus would look at our lives and not be able to make sense of it. And they would have to give glory to God on account of us. That's in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, and 1 Peter 2.12, that they would glorify God in the day of visitation. You see this after Pentecost happens, when the gospel is spreading throughout Jerusalem. Every day people are being saved, and they had favor with all the people. The Christians had favor with their community. See, when unbelievers look at our lives and our homes and our church, they should experience incredible cognitive dissonance. So they look at this, this godly patriarch, which Scripture says that, that men shouldn't aspire to, to be patriarchs. They, they, they aren't responsible to lead or rule in any way. Everything's the same between gender roles. But, but they should feel this tension as they look and they see a man who sacrifices for his wife, who loves, who leads her, who's head over heels in love with her, whose children obey him joyfully because they want to, whose family actually likes going to church. And they drive there in the minivan singing songs from Frozen the whole way there. And then they go out to lunch, and then they work hard during the week, and they play even harder, and they laugh until it hurts. And then they shovel the neighbor's driveway when it snows, or they mow the widow's yard next door. And then they put the kids to bed, and the man knows how to enjoy a good scotch from time to time. Yeah, I said that. But then they come back from church talking about this Jesus that their neighbors can't stand. And that's the cognitive dissonance. Oh, I love what I'm seeing. This family is beautiful. But they keep talking about Jesus. They keep giving Jesus credit. That's the point. The hellbound should have no earthly clue what in heaven's name to do with us. So what is our reputation in the community? So if you're a visitor here this morning and you aren't sure about this Jesus thing, you're invited to join the family. We're all here because we've been adopted as children through Jesus the Son, to belong to God the Father. He's the perfect patriarch we all need. We're here because of his grace. You can come to Jesus. You can live. He died and rose for sinners so that if you repent and turn to him, you can be saved. For our church, we shouldn't pick a professional. We should pick a spiritual father, and not just one, more than one. We should have a godly plurality of elders. For men, All of us, we need to be this type of man. We need to rule in our homes. For the wives and the kids, help us out. Help us lead. And to all of us, let's praise God for the good gifts that he gives to his church. He hasn't given us these rules just to lay more requirements on us. He's given them to us of himself. He gifts the church with men to lead pointing people to our true leader, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this word. Lord, we all fall infinitely short of this standard. We thank you that you've brought us into your household, Lord. Bless this church with godly men to lead and serve. Help us all to lead in our homes, to love and serve our families, to sacrifice for our families, to not abdicate responsibility, but to take responsibility, to be an example to our sons and daughters. Bless this church. Bless the families of the church. Bless the singles here, Lord. God, because all of these things apply.
to everyone, no matter what station we are in life. Even if someone is, is single or, or doesn't have parents in their life, whatever their station, whatever, wherever we are in life, we are a part of your family. And that is where our identity comes from. So, Father, we thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me for our last song here. Let's praise and glorify our God, the Father of our Lord. In Christ He has in heavenly realms His blessings on us poor. For pure and blameless in His sight He destined us to be. And now we've been adopted through His Son eternally. To the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who saves. Let's praise and glorify our God who gives his grace in Christ. In Him our sins are washed away, redeemed through sacrifice. In Him God has made known to us the mystery of His will, that Christ should be the head of all His purpose to fulfill. To the praise of Your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who saves. Let's praise and glorify our God. For we believe the word And through our faith we have a seal The Spirit of the Lord The Spirit guarantees our hope Until redemption's done Until we join in endless praise To God the three in one to the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory, you are the God who saves. To the praise of your glory, to the praise of your mercy and grace, to the praise of your glory. You are the God who saves. Number 6, 24 through 26. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give, give you peace. You are dismissed.